1: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, it's Manveen. Today's episode is part four of our ongoing series, Last Man Standing, which is an investigation To find out what happened to the British journalist John Cantley after he was kidnapped by ISIS back in 2012. If you haven't heard the first three parts, you'll want to go back and listen before you hear this. Just search for Last Man Standing wherever you get your podcasts. Also, just a quick warning this episode does contain descriptions of violence and torture, and perhaps unsurprisingly, strong language throughout. It all started as they were driving along a dusty road in Syria, on their way to the Turkish border. Antony and his team had just completed an assignment and they were heading home.
1: We peel off out of Tarrafat and we go this backcountry road and we go over this low brow in the road and there, the other side, is this black BMW X5 cruising the same direction as us, slowly, and it's immaculate, it's gleaming. Whenever you see a gleaming car in war, it's trouble because everything's covered in dust the whole time, particularly there in Syria. And so suddenly the vision of this big, powerful car... Just in front of us on an empty road, just like cruising slowly, gleaming. I was like, fuck, this is trouble, here it is. Really? Oh yeah, I knew immediately. I was like, absolutely, fucking shit's going to go down now.
0: Anthony realised that things were going seriously wrong. As the car got closer, just like John Cantley, Anthony shouted at the driver to go faster. But it was too late.
1: As we neared it... The driver's window wound down and this hand came out to wave us down. But it did it in this kind of slight rotation. Very languid, very slow. And with that, there was such entitlement and such power as well. The guy on the end of that hand knew that he had us. There was nothing panicked about it. This was like, you're gone.
0: As a reporter, Anthony Lloyd was used to telling the stories of war. But in 2014, he became the story. The Times journalist Anthony Lloyd was kidnapped in Syria last week, along with his photographer Jack Hill and a Syrian fixer called Mahmoud. Few people fall
1: victim to extremist forces and live to tell the story. Anthony Lloyd, special correspondent for The Times of London, has...
0: Just... 18 months after John Cantley and Jim Foley were abducted, as the number of people being kidnapped in Syria was rapidly rising, Anthony suddenly became one of them. We'll find out what happened in just a moment. But first, a quick reminder. Last time on Last Man Standing.
1: He's the first person to come out of Syria since... John and James were abducted in November 2012 and say, hey, they're still alive, I've seen them, and I know where they are.
0: A whole year after John and Jim were driven off in a silver Hyundai, the first real evidence emerges that they're still alive. And it comes from a former jihadist who shared a cell with them.
1: What they told me was that they got tortured really bad before I was there. Like, really bad.
0: We got glimpses of how they were a year after they'd been kidnapped. But there are parts of John Cantley's story that we'll never know. We don't know what he was thinking as he and Jim were bundled into the back of a silver Hyundai. We don't know how they felt as the car drove off in a cloud of dust. And John knew the worst had happened. But a year and a half later, on a very similar road, driving out of Aleppo towards Turkey, Anthony and the Times photographer Jack Hill were kidnapped in eerily similar circumstances. They know what it feels like when your whole world is being ripped away from you. They know what you'd be prepared to do when you desperately want to survive.
1: It was the portal through which their fate became very important to me.
0: This is a story that Anthony finds very difficult to tell. But we
1: thought you should hear it. I was thinking, you've got to do anything to survive. At this point, it's not about escape, it's about you've got to live, you've got to survive.
0: I'm Manveen Rana, and I'm joining the veteran war correspondent for The Times, Anthony Lloyd, for this special series on his long-running investigation to find out what happened to John Cantley. This is Last Man Standing from The Times and The Sunday Times, Episode 4, There But For The Grace Of God. It was May 2014. Antony had been in Aleppo, reporting on the rebels who were battling President Assad's forces. The trip had gone well, and on their way home, the team had stopped off to see an old contact, a local commander named Hakim. But the next morning, as they drove out towards the Turkish border, on the home straight, their trip almost over, That gleaming BMW suddenly drove into view. Anthony immediately knew they were in trouble.
1: I was just like, floor it to the driver, just fucking go. And the others in the car like, what, what? And I was like, they're going to take us. These are the bad guys. And there was some, you know, confusion in the car, like staring at me like I was freaking out. I was like, fucking go, fucking go. And then the kind of driver sat up a bit. But of course, I mean, the car, I don't know, what to <laughs> like 65 tops or something. This thing just wanged in front of us and it just cut straight across us. Oh, man, they came out of those doors like a coiled spring, about five of them. They'd done it before. There was no one, all of them armed, No one, you know, clicked their barrel on the car door or anything. They were straight out there, the way they handled their weapons. We were out of that car, spread eagle and banged up against the side of it within five seconds. Guns at the head. Wow. Now, in that time, because I was like, we're going to get taken here, I got my tracker out, clicked off the safety bar and pressed the uh, alarm button, which by rights should have sent a signal straight up to alert the security guy the other side of the border, but it didn't work. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) I didn't know that at the time. I was like, yeah, damn, press the button. Someone's going to know we're going down here. I didn't know that the message was just never received.
0: And for you, in that moment, you know, when you spot this other car and you see what's happening before the others do, you've clocked it, just describe how that feels when you know it's about to happen, you're about to get kidnapped.
1: The sesame's opening up, but it's not in front of you, it's under your feet. That's how it felt. It's just like the ground opening up and the awareness of not maybe we're in deep trouble here, but we're in deep, deep, deep trouble here.
0: Within seconds, the men had zip-cuffed Anthony, Jack Hill, their fixer Mahmood and their driver and bundled them into the car.
1: They piled the four of us under a blanket in the boot of the X5. It was quite a tangle. And drove off.
0: They were taken to a farm where they were questioned.
1: We are trying to say, look... We're journalists, you know, sorry if we have you know, missing some sort of permission, we're really sorry. And that wasn't cutting it at all. We got loads of, you know, you're Western dogs, you're your you're unbelievers, you know.
0: They were then blindfolded and led down into a dank, dark basement.
1: There's a number of things you lose. You lose your senses because you're blindfolded, so everything's black. Mm. You're hooded, so you can't hear very well. And you're cuffed, so you can't move properly. And you're mobilised and directed by cuffs, I mean, physical cuffs, slap on the back of the head, push on the shoulder, fist on your collar. You're not, you lose pretty much everything. I mean, it's not just your loss of technical liberty because you're Mm. a captive. It's just that you can't see, you can't hear properly, you can't move your hands and there are guys around with you with guns who kick you and punch you if you move and you're not supposed to. And if they do want you to move, they do it by picking you up by the scruff of your net and pushing you along.
0: Which must you're, be so odd because you must have an adrenaline rush. You must be highly alert and yet you can't, you can't see do or anything sense anything.
1: anything. Yeah. One thing I did begin to think was, straight off, I was like, you've got to escape. I mean, immediately, like within minutes of arriving in this farm, I was thinking we've got to get out of this. There's no doubt about what Islamic State did to prisoners. Yeah. So I was like, listen, you've got to get out of this. You've just got to get out of this.
0: But how do you do that? How do you get out?
1: There's a whole lot of thoughts that you don't really have before come to mind. You're like, like can I pick up, if I get the chance, a big stone and smash the brains out of a sleeping guard if it comes down to it? Can I kill somebody to get out of this?
0: Wow. That's not something you really think about as a journalist.
1: No, normally. and you know, oh, it's not going to be like shooting somebody. It's going to be like, can I smash someone's brains out with a rock if it's, that's what it takes to get out of this?
0: Did you have an answer?
1: No, I didn't have an answer. I had two very strong forces. One is like, you've got to get out of this. And the other was, I think, you know, killing people is wrong. Uh, that I believe very strongly, killing yeah. people is wrong. Yeah. So I was kind of caught between <laughs> those two thoughts. It wasn't the worst thought. The other one was like, supposing they cut my head off. How's that going to be? Wow. So like, what do you do? I was just thinking. I guess the way to do it is clench your jaw and give them as you much were, tension as possible. You were just actually to get it. Oh about yeah. Oh yeah. That's what you start thinking what, very quickly. What it
0: would feel like and how you make it harder for them.
1: No, how you make it easier for them.
0: Oh. Because you Not want it to how... be quick. Yeah. In darkness, in the basement, Anthony realises that something is changing. The kidnappers are moving. They bundle them into the car again, Anthony in the back, and what he doesn't realise is that Mahmood and Jack have been stuffed into the boot of the car. They can't tell where they're being taken. In the end, it was a lockup in a nearby town.
1: I end up in the back of a car, hooded, blindfolded, hands tied. Every now and then, the door does open, and someone hits me over the head. But not, I mean, not like knockout blow, just like hard, short jab or a cuff just to keep me pacified, I guess.
0: Stuck on his own, in darkness, in the back of the car, for the first time since the ordeal began, Anthony has time to stop and think.
1: There was an awareness pretty straight off. I was like, right, I'm on the very edge of a precipice of something that's either going to result in my death or is going to result in my long, long-term captivity and having a really nasty time. Mm. Beyond that, this experience, which is about to happen now, unless I manage to escape, is going to really harm my family. It's going to harm my wife. It's going to harm my children in ways I cannot even imagine. I've got to get out of here. There's a very complicated amount of feelings around that. It's like a recognition of, fuck, my decisions have brought me into this place where far worse than what happens to me is going to be that my choices can smash people I love. I think that's a very common feeling around hostages.
0: Anthony's thoughts are suddenly
1: interrupted. I judge what happens next by sounds and by motion, because that is all I can hear. Hmm. What I hear is some movement outside and a bit of murmur. And then this card gives a very sudden lurch. And then I can hear frantic kind of thumping and some kind of blunt, blunt instrument bash, this kind of thwock, thwock. And I'm like... Great, this is going left field even faster than I thought. This is the start of torture. They have pulled one of the guys out the back. Oh. And, you know, that guy hitting him with a crowbar or something. No voice, nothing, just the sound of human body being hit. Oh, God, I just, that feeling, it's horrible. Unable to move, unable to see, limited hearing. And the overriding awareness that someone right behind me, one of my team, were being held down and beaten with an instrument. But that wasn't what was happening. What was happening was that Mahmood, the fixer who had been working with us, who had been in prison before, and in his day had been a rebel fighter as well, and knew how to do this kind of stuff, The captors, he was in the boot. The captors had opened the boot an inch to allow him and Jack Hill to breathe because they might have been going to suffocate otherwise. Mahmood, when they'd plaster cuffed him, if you hold your wrists in a certain way when the cuffs are zipped up, slightly angled, you've got a bit of wiggle room. Hmm. If you're a lummox like me, he's not had it done before and you just hold them together and they truss you up like a hog and you can't do anything, right? Anyway, he had secured some wiggle room. He had licked his wrists and he would found a little nut sticking on the side of the car. It looks like a rivet nut. And he had, he's quite a slender guy anyway, he'd crunched one of his hands up. And it must have been pretty difficult to do and got it out.
0: Wow. So he he was motivated to by some
1: some of the same motivation as me, but even more acutely, because as Syrian, he was like, I'm going to be dead at dusk.
0: Mahmoud knew he had no value for the kidnappers. They would get no ransom. So the moment his hands were free, he had to act.
1: And he's seen there's one guard there. He waits until the guard puts his Kalashnikov down to have a cigarette. Mahmoud jackknives straight out the back of the boot and starts beating the guy around the head. Wow. Now, he can't shout or anything like that because he doesn't know where the other guards are, so he's hitting this guy as hard as he can. Jack Hill in the boot piles out too. Because it's a lock-up and the guards haven't you know, cleaned it up or been ready as much, there's a claw hammer there. So Mahmood picks it up and gives the guard a righteous thwacking over the head with a claw hammer. Wow. Yeah, which ends the fight pretty quickly. Wow, so now they're in a lockup At the start of an extremely violent escape bid. All this happening in seconds. No one says anything. Jack comes round to my door and tries it. Jack couldn't open it. Now, he can't say, hey, Ant, we've taken out the guard with a claw hammer, time to go, mate, because no one knows where the other guards are, but the inference is they're really close. So he murmurs something a couple of times. All I've got no idea. I think my gang are being tortured by the captains. And you're hooded, you can't hear I'm hooded, so all I hear is... I'm completely confused. This is all within seconds. Mahmood recognises the moment is not to hang around it's to go. He bangs, it's a lock-up, the slide-down door, he bangs the side of the door really hard with his shoulder and goes straight out of that door. Now, just the other side of the door, there's four gunmen in a car, but they're all in the car having a cigarette and the car engine's off. So they just suddenly, this guy burst out the door, you know, six foot in front of them, and go legging it up the street. Jack has given a few seconds away in trying to get me out without being able to say anything. I don't have a clue what's going on. And more to the point, oh, my God, I felt like... I'm in a different world to them. I'm in a world where my team are being tortured.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm in
1: just, like... You don't know that they're actually... I, I felt sick. I was absolutely... Oh, I didn't vomit, but I was just... I I thought we were all being tortured and tied up and we couldn't do anything about it. It was so just, like... sound
0: of a hammer horrible. to a skull. Horrible, yeah. You think it's your team.
1: yeah. Yeah, I was, for some seconds, I can absolutely say I was paralysed with fear. Absolutely. But not for long. Here's the thing. Mahmood's burst out. This is probably within 10 seconds of him kicking his way out the boot and smashing the guy around the head with a hammer. He bursts out the side. The guards see him legging up the road and they start, jump out the car and start running after him. Jacqueline bursts out the door And starts running too, but almost into the midst of those guards. None of this do I see. All I'm aware is that the driver, he somehow gets out of the car. He must have been in the backseat beside me. I still don't know what's going on, but I'm aware that someone in the car has left. There's been all this beating. Still within, I don't know, maybe we're talking 15, 20 seconds. So I kick my brain out of its, out of its like torture scenario. I was just like, okay, you've got to whatever's happening, you've got to see what's happening. So I push my hood up with my thumbs and my um blindfold up. And there's pretty much darkness, but you can discern some shapes. One of the bits of light is a beam of light coming down from a trapdoor in the ceiling with a ladder going down the wall to a flat roof above me. Until a few minutes before, there had been guys with guns who you know, had me as a hostage, and now there's nobody. I'm in an empty car of darkness in a lockup. And so I'm just like, I catapult straight up that ladder uh, and through the trap door. I'm like, I don't do no know time. what is going on here, but this is the moment to escape. But everybody's somewhere doing whatever it is they're doing, I've no idea. I'm out of here. I ran up the ladder. My feet weren't tied. My hands weren't. It's pretty, pretty. It was That was difficult. And you managed
0: to pull the, the blindfold Yeah, off. I pulled
1: the hood off and the blindfold was up or gone. I thumbed it off. So I've got my hands bound by plastic cuffs, but I'm up that ladder. Then I get to the roof. I'm running along a flat roof. I'm thinking, right, I'm going to Jason Bourne my way out of this, I tell you. And then I just remember the next thing I hear is horrible. It's the whole thing was so violent. Horrible beating and thumps and yells down from the street to my right. And I remember having to f- grapple with fear to make myself look over the roof and see what was going on, because there was a temptation, particularly once I'd started running, of just keep running. Get just as far away from this situation as you can. But there was also the thing that, look, if you want to escape, you need to kind of know what's going on. Mm. So I forced myself to look over the side, and there I saw a pretty bad sight: It was Jack Hill down on the ground, being beaten by quite a lot of guys, one of them being Hakim, our host of the night before.
0: It was at that moment that Anthony realized how the kidnappers had found them. Hakim Anza, otherwise known as Abdul Hakim Aliyasin, a local rebel commander who'd hosted them the night before, had now betrayed them. He was a former accountant who Anthony had known for two years and who they'd made a detour to visit when they could have gone straight home. They'd dined with him, met his newborn daughter, played with his son and spent the night under his roof. This was the man who'd planned their abduction.
1: I wouldn't call him a friend. I wouldn't have caught... Being realistic, was he a friend or was he just a, a contact, a journalistic source? I think it's easy to play he was our friend, he betrayed us. And in fact, I'm like... But we got on OK. He was a contact and a source, but he still betrayed us.
0: And it's not just that he passed on your details to somebody else. He's actually there oh, physically Oh, he's right beating into it. He's Jack.
1: beating Jack. He's beating Jack. Jack's struggling on the ground and trying to throw a few bats. We've got about four guys laying into him.
0: Anthony watched helplessly. From the rooftop
1: above Jack, oh, like they got Jack, they're beating him, and one of those doing it is the guy. The one guy <laughs> thought that if he found out that we'd been kidnapped, he might be able to help us, but he's part of it. Oh, uh, we got zero friends here.
0: Anthony is stuck on a rooftop while Jack is being beaten in middle of the street, and things are about to get worse. We'll be back with more in just a moment. But if you're interested in this series, then you might want to access some of the other investigations from The Times and The Sunday Times. You can find them all collected on the reporter feed wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? I'm David Badil. I'm a writer and a comedian and a Jew. I'm Saeed Avasi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim. Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. of people talk about us, and this is us talking about ourselves, the kind of things that people say don't touch, yeah. we are going to go there.
1: I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew go there.
0: Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Anthony is on the roof of a lockup where he and the team were being held. His hands are tied and he's looking down over the edge where the Times photographer, Jack Hill, is being beaten in middle of the street by the kidnapping gang. He needs to get away from there, fast.
1: So then I ran along a bit more roof and I came to a water tower. By a water tower, I mean a kind of like breeze block thing about... 10 foot high, 12 foot high with a water tank on top of it, commonly used by people on flat roof housing uh, to store their water in. And I thought my roof options were getting a bit limited because it wasn't as easy to jump from one roof to the next. It's like the <laughs> much yeah. bigger gaps so I could jump. But I thought, okay, what I'm going to do, there's a ladder up the side of the tower. I'm going to get up there on the ladder, then I'm going to pull the ladder up behind me, put it flush against the water tower, and I'm going to squeeze in underneath it in the shadow. And I'm going to wait till the sun goes down. And I made enough distance, kind of, to... um, It'll be quite difficult for anyone pursuing me to know exactly where I've gone. And this is a good place to hide up. It was,
0: until... Anthony spotted two children, and worse still, they'd spotted him. His plan
1: was ruined. These two kids oh, my God, about eight, nine, to maybe ten years old in the street. And they look up and clearly... They've seen you. They see, wedged in the base of the water tower, they can see a guy there, me, and I'm kind of staring at them. And then they can see them just turning to a guy crossing and pointing. And I was like, oh, shit. No. So down goes the ladder, the other side of the water tower... I'd had it all in my head, Okay, the sun's up there, so that's south, that's north, I've got to get to Turkey at night, I can do this, but now I'm suddenly like, shit, I've been seeing I'm on the run again.
0: Anthony would later learn that he was just 20 miles from the Turkish border, but for now, he just had to keep moving.
1: I'm running again and the wall's narrow, the roof narrows, and I've got to go down... And I see that on one side of the street, I look down, and there's a big fat guy, young fat guy looking up at me. I don't know, he's 20s. And on the other side, there's two women in a black abaya. And the fat guy, he's got quite a nice face, and he's saying, come down, come down. You can see I'm bound. And then on the other side, there are these two women, and they're saying in English too, come down, come down. And I'm like, who do I trust (laughs) in? (laughs) <laughs> the fat guy or the two women. So then I'm like, the two women, I guess. Bad move. Oh, anyway. No. <laughs> yeah. So i got to get the ladder from the water tower to get down. I'm quite, this high thing, I'm trying to, this minion ladder, it's all covered up, my hands are still tied. So I lower that down and by the time I scramble down, I'm in this kind of walled garden, quite a big, wide, rich man's compound. The women are gone. And I'm immediately like, shit. The people who invited me down here have gone. So uh I ran around the edge of this compound. There's various rooms going off it, no one around. I got into this kitchen, a small blue-tiled kitchen, and I can see the knives and forks beside the sink that have been washed up. So I grabbed a kitchen knife and clamped it in my teeth and I'm trying to cut through the plastic cuffs. Yeah. But that's a hiding to know where I can tell you, I thought logically that was a sharp kitchen knife too, but that wasn't going to do anything. Then I found some matches and tried to burn some kitchen roll to burn them off my wrists and that wasn't working too well. It could have worked, except the next thing I hear is the door at the end of the compound getting sort of kicked open and this heavy, angry footfalls Mm. of men. And I can tell by the weight of the footfalls, they're armed as well. Bang out the end of the uh, kitchen, and there's a bathroom there. It's a dead end, same blue tiles. So I uh, hide behind the door of the bathroom, and I've got the knife in my hand still. So I'm like, quickly, definitely get rid of that. Because if someone peels in here with a sword rifle, they see me with a knife, definitely going to kill me. So I drop that. And then I'm just waiting, and I'm hidden quite well behind the leeway of the door. And I can see in the reflection of the tiles in front of me what is going on down the corridor behind me so I can see five or six guys with assault rifles kind of checking out rooms and nearing the bathroom and then one fighter just stops by the door of the bathroom and he looks in and he looks left and right and he cannot see me what how because I'm hiding behind the lee of the door oh and he is just about to go when he looks at the empty bit of tiling just in front of him and sees my reflection hiding behind the door. <sighs> and he whizzes round, and I said don't shoot, but he banged off around from his Klashnikov straight away. It went over my shoulder. It hit the wall behind me, smashed off the tiling, and hit a water pipe, which he couldn't make it up. It squirted this water <sighs> back over me and him. But rather than... He acted like I'd just fired a round at him. He kind of reeled back with his Klashnikov and, and then fired another round off at me, oh, which no. went straight over my... Shoulder as well and smashed out another bit of tiling. Thank God he
0: was a bad shot.
1: Well, thank God he was. But was he trying to kill me or not? Was he just trying to make me freeze? He was so freaked out. I don't know what he thought he was trying to do. But the other guys came up a second later and they weren't freaked out. They were enraged. It was like I'd burnt these people's homes. They were furious. I mean, beyond... It was like I'd insulted their mothers or whatever. Mm. They were in a punitive rage, so they laid into me properly. That's when the beating started. Um, they beat me with rifle butts. They kicked me. They punched me. They started to beat me properly. The only good thing about it was because there were about five of them trying to do it all at once. No one actually got a really good swing. <laughs> swinger going because they're all trying to do it at once so it was all sort of elbows elbows and feet but I sure knew which side of the desk I was sitting on, tell you that so they dragged me outside and uh, I'm still bound and then you know it gets worse and worse there's a car outside big car and they open the door and push me in it and inside is this huge guy his face covered in blood And I don't know this at the time, but it's the guard who Mahmood's hitting around the head with a hammer who's now regained consciousness. You can imagine what kind of mood he's in. And they're chucking me in like, hey, here's one to play with. Oh, man, he hits me so hard. I go popping out back of the car like a kind of champagne cork and it pops the blood vessels in my eye. So I get this donut of blood in my eyeball and lose temporarily some of the vision of my right eye. But I still don't know who he is because I've never seen him before. I I don't know until we put all the pieces together. Well, the big guy with his head smashed in covered in blood was the guard who you got offered to, but that's who it was.
0: Anthony is punched with such force that he crashes out of the car onto the pavement, where he's beaten again and dragged through the streets. And that's when he sees the man who betrayed him, talking to the crowd who's now gathered, having heard the commotion.
1: There in the middle of the street was Hakim, the leader of the gang. Oh. And I can hear him addressing this crowd, and he keeps saying, Jesus, Jesus, which is spies, spies. Now, calling someone spy in Syria is, you know, you're a goner. Yeah very easily catches people's imagination. They're a spy. They're a CIA spy, you know. And uh, a couple of things. As I was walked through these gunmen, my hands, and I started saying, British journalists, why? British journalists, why? To these various gunmen. Because I was thinking, I need people to know here, I'm either going to disappear or they're going to kill me now. And I need people here to know that I'm British journalist because someone is going to look for me one day.
0: Yeah. Anthony then came face to face with the man who betrayed him.
1: So then they pushed me up to Hakim for the next punishment bit. I, and, I, and I managed to be quite cool. I said, Hello, Hakim. I thought we were supposed to be friends. And he pulled these pistols straight out as they were holding me by my arms and blanked two rounds straight into my ankle. Makarov, close range. And I was lucky it didn't take my foot off. How? Uh, two how things does that in my favour. It felt like being hit really hard with a baseball bat, but not that painful. It was more the impact of it, which I was like, wow. It felt like, um, yeah, being hit hard, but without the pain of it. It wasn't immediately painful. It sure hurt later, but it was just like very heavy impact. I didn't fall over. The two things going in my favour is, one, he did it at such close range. The bullets hadn't picked up their full momentum. Hmm. And number two, he shot me through my leather boot, like a hiking boot. And those two things really helped. Uh, I mean, the bullets went in and spun around, but, it, you know, you he could can cripple somebody worse. shooting them in the ankle. yeah. Uh, or have them bleed out. One interesting thing, as soon as he blanged me, the guy behind me, I don't know if he was doing me any favours or not, just grabbed the scruff of my neck and just propelled me, it was a strong guy, straight away from Hakeem and straight through that crowd up some steps to a building and I was beginning to lose the use of my leg then but this guy now was he another bad guy who just wanted to put me in another room and give me some more beating or was it someone there who was kind of like this is getting this guy's about to die and I'm going to prevent that I don't know but some unseen big figure behind me got hold of me and just as soon as I've been shot just propelled me straight out of that situation they then put me in a room. There's a whole lot of armed guys. Chaos. They're all shouting. They're all armed, all screaming at each other. And there, <laughs> the far side of the wall, chained to a radiator or handcuffed to a radiator, is Jack Hill, whose face is all smashed in. And he looks at me out of his head and goes, don't worry, Aunt. it's all going to be fine. <laughs> this is like... Ten seconds after I've been shot twice, I can't see out one of my eyes. <laughs> it's good, as good as asking for the priest, you know. And uh, I'm in this room, and as Jack was smashed to pieces, chained up to a radiator. I mean, I admire well, his optimism. <laughs> I don't know what that was about. Looks about as far from fine to me as you could get. <laughs> like, don't worry, Anne. It's all going to be fine. Yeah, really, it's going going just fine so far. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, then in true Syrian style, oh my God, the guys, all these armed men, I don't know whose group they are, suddenly realise that the new foreigner in town, me, my face also beaten in my eye, all bloody, I've got blood coming out my nose, has been shot, and I'm slopping blood all over the place. And they don't want blood. <laughs> so they're kind of like, well, this one's been shot, get him out of here. So then I'm dragged by that stage, I guess, out of the room, Oh, my God, on the street outside, the same big cars there. They open the door, same Mr Hammerhead smash-ups there, and they chuck me in with him and then start driving around the town as this guy gets his full retribution.
0: The car keeps driving as Anthony is given a thrashing in the back. Barely conscious, he's dragged out again and a rock is smashed into his head.
1: Then I'm just down on the ground, and they drag me like uh, you know I didn't, I couldn't stand or even lean up. They drag me into a room, and um, there were a lot of very aggressive young guys there, armed young guys, Hakeem's gang, and they kick and stamp on my ankle that's been shot. Oh, yeah. Oh God. Yeah. That was how it was. Very violent, very punitive. They wanted to make me scream.
0: I mean, what are you thinking at this point?
1: Fucking hell, that hurts. (laughs) I mean, that
0: that could damage your ankle forever. That could be your, you know, as you said, that could be your foot gone.
1: Oh, yeah, I wasn't thinking it. I'll tell you what I was thinking. I was thinking um, survive for the next few seconds. I was thinking that. I was thinking you've got to survive. You've got to Survive. And I was thinking, anything. You've got to do anything to survive. At this point, it's not about escape. It's about you've got to live, you've got to survive.
0: But the ordeal wasn't over yet. We'll have the rest of Anthony's story in just a moment, after a quick word from a colleague.
1: Hello, I'm Emma Tucker, editor of The Sunday Times. It's thanks to listeners like you that we're able to provide journalism that matters. Get to the heart of the story every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. So, in the next weird, totally surreal instalment, some of them pick me up and drop me on a gurney. And they cut off all my clothes with a pair of scissors, like surgical scissors, till I'm stark bollock naked, covered in blood, with my plastic cuffs still on. And they start examining me and they're trying to look, they're trying to find some transmitter in my ear, it seems, I guess.
0: These fighters seem to be convinced that Anthony is some sort of spy. But then, a new group of men bursts in. These are big jihadi fighters, and when they demand that everyone leaves the room, even the kidnappers are forced to do as they're told.
1: They just kind of look at these guys like, get out, like they're ushering them like dogs. And finally, all the kidnap gang leave the room. With the jihadis, there's this little guy who speaks some English. And the first thing he says to me, which is a great thing to say, he says, don't worry, we know who you are, and you're going to be okay.
0: That must
1: have been such a relief. What it is, is that because Mahmood... The fixer, when he had escaped, he had had the Jason Bourne escape. He had seen a bike parked outside a cafe with a key in the ignition. Wow. He had frog leaped onto it, hit the ignition and was away like Jason Bourne. Well done, him. Mahmood got out and told Syrian activists, there's a gang there, and they've got Western journalists hostage.
0: The kidnappers' plans were also being scuppered, by the special risks advisor, a man named Russ, who was waiting for Antony and the team in Turkey. Although the alarm on their tracker hadn't worked, he'd been tracking their satellite signal and saw them veering off course, and he knew something had gone seriously wrong. He immediately headed into Syria to find them.
1: He went straight in with the Syrians, straight to the headquarters of the nearest big rebel base and said two of my journalists are missing. Now that Syrian rebel group we didn't know it but they had some arrangement with the French and the Emiratis and the Americans for tow missiles and all the rest of it. It was not cool for them to have in their area Westerners taken hostage and potentially sold onto ISIS. Thank God. So they started looking for us too so suddenly things are getting really complicated for the kidnap gang.
0: So Although the jihadis who've arrived and cleared the room are also from a dangerous Islamic group, it's in their interests to get Anthony to safety.
1: They want me out of their area, out of their hair. So the big one, questions me a little bit, quite gently, but he said something quite cool, which was quite helpful then. He said, um, hmm, yeah, we're sorry this happened to you. We're sorry those guys got you. You're going to be all right now. But in your job, a few scars are no bad thing, That's what he said to me. And it was a pretty cool thing to say that kinda of helped. Then there is a big survival liberation thought, like, I might one, I might live, and two, I might actually get out <laughs> I might actually get out of this shit. Things are beginning to look good. But I'm not out of he the woods yet. Two
0: bullets in his foot. <laughs>
1: I'm not out of this yet. Yeah. Then this doctor pulled out his little Nokia phone and he said, you got two minutes of credit and three bars of signal. You should make one call. You should let someone know you're here. So there was, it was, a, it was a very acute moment. I thought if I ring the office, they will coordinate everything. And presumably they know that I've gone missing. I didn't turn up in Turkey. I believe my alarm system must have worked, which it hadn't. They're going to know that there's major shit street going down here. So if I tell them just briefly, I'm alive, I don't know what's happened to the others, and I think I'm here, but I'm not really sure, they will do everything. But the other thought was, if the office know that I've been kidnapped in Syria, they will have told my family very quickly because that's a, a immediate protocol. And if my family do know that, then they will be in extreme pain. And I must end that pain... Over and above anything else. So therefore, my one call must be to my family. And so that's what I did. And I remember my wife took the call. And I was, you know, I was briefing together. I just said, look, can you tell anybody who needs it to know that I'm still alive? I'm not sure what's happened to the others, but I may even get out of this.
0: Lying there, still not sure if he was completely safe. Anthony was surprised by one of the fighters.:
1: I had a locket around my neck with the ashes of a great friend of mine, Kurt Shawk, who was killed in Sierra Leone, He was killed in an ambush, in the locket, and I always keep it. Hero. And they uh, yeah, and um, you know, great power. So um, they're taken off me. I think when they strip me. Yeah. Uh, and anyway, there I was lying at one point, thinking maybe I've won through here, but I was still, you know, no one had washed the blood off and I'd, I don't think I had any clothes on still. And uh, this badass guy walked up and he had the locket and his hand, he suddenly just pressed it back into my hand and left me there with it. It came wow. back, I've got it still. That must have been quite a moment. Yeah, that was quite a moment. The
0: jihadist group got Anthony out of the building and drove him to meet the others. Mahmood, the fixer, who'd escaped and raised the alarm with rebel groups, and Jack Hill, who'd also been badly beaten. Their driver had already managed to get away.
1: Mahmood and Jack Hill had gone into the car.
0: That must have been a relief. It was. What sort of shape were they
1: in? Mahmood looked fine, except he was absolutely he crazed. He had a white face. And Jack was smashed up but they were a bit concerned with me because I wanted to go to sleep at that point, oddly, and uh, I couldn't see what my face looked like, and uh, they could. And they were like, don't go to sleep, and they kept pinching me.
0: Fortunately, as they reached the Turkish border, they were met by the security advisor, Russ, who had an ambulance waiting. Seven days after emergency surgery, Anthony. Finally, headed home.
1: I can't remember quite the next bit. I was a bit out of it, but there was an ambulance that took me to a hospital, and then uh, I actually had the bullets taken out by an Afghan surgeon in Istanbul.
0: The surgery went well, and a few weeks later, Anthony was recovering enough to be able to head home.
1: I was wheeled out in a wheelchair, and I've been very high on all this escape really kind of like lying awake throughout the night just staring just like fuck yeah I'm alive I thought I was gone and I'm, I'm I made it anyway then it was time to go and I'm right beside the boot and I can hear the sh- sh- sound as he opens it up and the last time I hear that I'm being put in the back of an x5 as a hostage and I just oh god it was horrible it was just horrible feeling like nausea kind of just Squirm, revulsion. That was just that horrible realization. Then, like, fuck, it's not a full escape. Um, fuck. The when you say go it's, by.
0: it's not a full
1: escape, just like this is still with you. Yeah. This is still with you.
0: That was eight years ago now, and Anthony doesn't really like to talk about it.
1: I couldn't walk for six weeks, and I found very quickly, of course, that being at home, once you're back, life goes on, and rightfully, normally, for one's family, my wife went back to work, my kids went back to school, and I ended up home unable to walk, uh, not seeing anybody for the best part of six weeks which I shouldn't, I don't know how else I would have or should have handled that, but that wasn't great. It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't great. And certainly the survival high gone, I was in a few quite dark spaces at that time. Yeah, that wasn't a great period. And I felt a terrible guilt Actually, a terrible guilt, I think, more than the horror. I get some pretty bad dreams, but I felt guilt. I really replayed on, like, you know what? It was me who made that decision to turn in that town. I tell you what I got, I got, and I think it's gone now. I got some sort of hammering, chest-hammering rages. Like... Your chest was just going to explode with rage. I never had that before. Yeah. Never had that before.
0: Anthony survived that day. But he knows that if any one thing had gone differently, then it might have been him being paraded in an orange jumpsuit while being held hostage by ISIS. It's one of the reasons he's felt so obsessed by John Cantley's story, and by the need to find out what happened to him.
1: And John Cantley was not a friend of mine. You know, this I'm, I'm not saying this is the pursuit of some friend. If I got to know John better, would I have gone on well with, him, well with him or not? I don't know. It's that's not what it's about. I found him as I have got to know him more through the words and reflections of others, I found that he was very interesting and complex guy who was much deeper than than, than the John Kelly I encountered but you know this guy this man played this incredible game to survive and he disappeared ultimately and I find it, you know a need to try and find out to have found out as best I could what, what did happen to John
0: Anthony was lucky. He managed to escape the day he was kidnapped, but that was rare. Next time, on Last Man Standing, we'll hear from some of those who were taken hostage alongside John Cantley.
1: The only strategy is a survival strategy. I mean, you cannot fight them straight because they're stronger and you are defeated. I mean, you are a prisoner, you're not free. They want to kill you, they kill you anyway. They don't have any pity, they don't care. So the only thing you can do is try and find some strategies. And, and that's exactly what John was trying to do. In the meantime, you're basically living in a, in, in a nest of rattlesnakes. And basically every move you can do, they can bite.
0: Last Man Standing is a Stories of Our Times production for The Times and The Sunday Times. This series is based on an investigation and interviews conducted by Anthony Lloyd, war correspondent at The Times. It's co-presented and executive produced by me, Manveen Rana. The lead producer is Poppy Damon. The producer is Matthew Wareham. Story editing is by Joe Sykes at Samizdat Audio. Sound design and original music is by Tom Birchall. And the executive producer of Stories of Our Times is Kate Ford.